In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So just in case you weren't able to be with us last week, we, uh, we began a series uh, in which we're focusing on really some of the most beautiful verses in all of the scriptures. Uh, the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, we sometimes call them second and third Isaiah, and, and they tell the story of uh, a devastating event that happened to a group of people. Um, and it's all about what they learned out of that experience, um, what they learned about themselves, but even more importantly, what they learned about God. And uh, the reason that I gave uh, the title, When the Bottom Drops Out, What Then?, is not only because it describes the biblical material, but also because as I look at my own life story, as I know some of yours, um, it's clear that though in differing degrees, uh, we all know something about what the poets call a shipwreck of dreams. We have all had things happen to us uh, that we didn't expect or things that we expected that really didn't turn out the way we might have hoped. Um, you know, they say that there are some things that you learn that you can see when you're flat on your back that you just can't see when you are standing up and all self-sufficient. Um, there are things, uh, there are stars in the sky uh, that you can see when it's dark that are there all the time during the day, but you don't see them because of the brightness. And in the same way, there are things to be learned in the darker, the deeper places of life that we really don't learn any other way. So it's because life is the way it is, because we're not in control of everything, but we do have the power to decide what we are going to do with what life does to us. And so my assumption is that none of us is a stranger to what it feels like when the bottom falls out. Um, and my hope is that these words of grace from nearly 2,600 years ago um, can help to shape us into a company of hopers. So I don't want to take too much time to reiterate the story, but let me remind you that somewhere in the middle of the 6th century BC, um, the Hebrews had been living in Palestine for a thousand years when they were overrun by a conquering army, the Babylonians, under this very cruel dictator named Nebuchadnezzar, swept in, the city of Jerusalem was leveled, the temple was destroyed, and some 25,000 of the best and the brightest among them were deported 600 miles to Babylon. And because from the time of Abraham, you see, the Hebrews had believed that they were a chosen people, they really didn't think they would have to suffer as other peoples suffer. And from the time of Moses, they really believed that this land had been given to them by God. It was the promised land, so they thought it would never be taken away from them. And so this experience meant that not only the physical structures, but the spiritual foundations of their lives now lay in ruins. 
into that experience of disillusionment and despair, there came a voice, a prophetic voice, whose coming was pure grace. And Isaiah reminded them that God had not forgotten them, any more than God had forgotten their ancestors uh, who lived in Egypt under slavery. Isaiah reminded them that God's covenant with them was an everlasting one, that it was not based on their worthiness, but rather on God's mercy and love. And he pointed them to an event just beyond the horizon which their despairing eyes could not yet see. Another nation was to the east of Babylon was rising, the Persians, under an incredible ruler by the name of Cyrus, who Isaiah recognizes as the hand of God who will allow the people to return to their homeland and rebuild not only their walls, but also their broken dreams. That prophetic voice Uh, What that prophetic voice did was to remind the children of Israel of what they already knew about God, but somehow over the years had forgotten. You know, there are some who say that forgetfulness is really the essence of original sin. I remember hearing this story about a a, a little baby that was born into a family. Uh, They already had a five-year-old little girl in the family, And uh, so they got the little baby home, and just a few weeks later, the five-year-old sister said to her mother, could I spend just a little bit of time alone with my baby sister? And as you can imagine, the mother was a little hesitant, but eventually allowed her to be in her sister's room with her, and then, of course, went and listened carefully at the monitor and overheard her older daughter say to her sister, tell me all that you know about God. I'm beginning to forget. Have you not heard, the prophet says, have you not known the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, Even youth shall faint and grow weary and young ones shall fall exhausted, which is exactly what happened when they were taken into exile. But they who wait for the Lord, he says, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let me just say that those Three images, uh, for me, are about as powerful as any in the Bible about what God is like and what God will do. Um, What the prophet is saying is that God is as active in history as the breath that we breathe, as the earth that is supporting us. He's saying that God is a refuge, a strength, a very present help in trouble. And of course, that begs the question, if God is really to be counted on in the midst of history, if in your situation this morning, God really understands and God is willing to do something, then what is the shape that that grace to help can take in your life and mine? 
it seems to me that in this like trinity of familiar images, we have three different ways that we can honestly expect God to interact in our lives. And I think the prophet is being very clear. There is not just one way that God comes, but several different ways. And maybe one of the secrets at not being disillusioned spiritually is that we give God the latitude to come in the form that God deems most appropriate. So the first of these I would describe as acts of rescue or intervention. Sometimes we are lifted out of the circumstances of our lives and life itself is just dramatically changed. What, is, what we are up against is altered, and it's not because of our own energies, but because of energies beyond ourselves. Just as surely as Cyrus coming to take those Hebrews back to Jerusalem, having done nothing themselves. There are any number of examples of, of this kind of thing in, um, in the scriptures. I suppose the most obvious example would be the miracle stories of Jesus. But there are times when we mount up with wings like eagles, where the warm currents of God's spirit literally lifts us up above the storm as, um, as the warm winds do for eagles. God simply breaks in and alters the circumstances of our lives. Two things, however, about the miraculous. The first is that whenever you and I find ourselves in a tight situation, this is almost always the first prayer that comes out of our mouths. And that is very understandable. Our first experience about receiving help in our lives when we were just infants took the form of rescue. I mean, you and I were born into the world, we couldn't do anything but cry and hope that somebody would hear us. And if the big people didn't intervene, none of us would have survived. The reality is somebody picked you up. Somebody washed you off. Somebody fed you. And so it shouldn't surprise us when later in life, when suddenly we are diagnosed with an illness or the bottom drops out in any other way that we cannot alter, it shouldn't surprise us that our first prayer is always to ask God to somehow break in miraculously and change the situation. But the second thing I want to say is that while I do believe with all my heart that these kinds of things happen, I have been in way too many situations when from a human point it just seemed hopeless, and suddenly energies that nobody could account for broke in, and there was a physical healing, or circumstances were altered in ways that nobody could explain. I honestly believe that um, being open to the miraculous is just being realistic. Having said that, we need to recognize this is not the only way God acts in history. Miracles are, in fact, miraculous. And one of our great dangers, especially with these TV evangelist healers, is that we begin to suggest that the only thing that is worthy of being called divine is when there is some kind of stupendous miracle. That is one way. It is not the only way. 
there are at least two other ways that grace to help comes into our lives. So the second of those I would call active collaboration. So sometimes God chooses to break into our lives and solves our problems for us. Much more often, God comes alongside us and invites us to join with God in a creative solution. Look, the most significant story in all of the Hebrew scriptures is what? It's the deliverance of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, the Exodus, right? You remember, God comes to Moses and says, I want us to go together and set my people free. And you remember that when Moses was young and idealistic, he was all in favor of that. You remember the days when you were young and idealistic, and we were going to change the world, right? But by the time God came to Moses in the Sinai Desert, um, he he was wiser in the ways of the world, I suppose you would say. And so when God said, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go, Moses said, really, that's impossible, God. I know the Pharaoh. I went to prep school with him. He is not about to let these people go. But God insisted, together, we can do this. And I want to suggest to you that collaboration is probably the most common way that God does move in our lives. God doesn't do things for us as if we were still little babies. Most of the time, God invites us to participate in what God wants done. If you stop and think about it, there are so many things in life that can only be solved in a collaborative way. Every year before the crop book, I have someone say, if there is a God, why does God God allow people to go hungry? And my response to them is, it's funny, you know, there's enough resources and food in the world to feed everyone many times over. It's not about God's will. It's about our willingness. We're looking at unmistakable global warming in our society, though some of our global leaders, including our own, seem to refuse to acknowledge that. It takes a little girl named Greta to actually get millions of kids to walk out of school and say, our generation is not leaving the earth as we should. It always drives me crazy when Christian scientists pretend that there's only faith healing, as though what doctors and nurses do is not also of God. So many of the problems that we face, poverty and racism, take not only our ingenuity, but our willingness to work alongside God's will. And I want to suggest to you that that's what Isaiah means when God talks about those who wait on the Lord shall run and not be weary. However, there is a third form that God's help takes, much overlooked, I think because it is often the quietest of all, though maybe also the most important. Sometimes God chooses to break in and solve our problems for us. Sometimes God comes along and wants to solve problems with us. However, there are other times when God says, I am not going to change the circumstances in which you find yourself but I am going to give you the strength to endure what you cannot change. 
And it is in that slow, sometimes painful, living with things that you cannot change. Day by day, walking with things that are very difficult. It is through the gift of endurance that you become a different person. You remember in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he talks about a thorn in the flesh. He has some kind of physical ailment that is really impacting his life. And first of all, he pleads that God would heal him. He probably also availed himself of every medical resource that was available at the time. But one night, it came to him clearly. Paul, I am not going to take this thorn in the flesh away from you. But I am going to give you grace sufficient to bear it. And Paul, you are going to become something different because of it. It's the grace to walk and not faint. Just hanging in there. Being able to endure circumstances that we cannot change. And in so doing, we are changed. There are so many of you here right now who can testify what that kind of experience is like. It is not as spectacular as a miraculous healing. It may not be as satisfying as some activist solution. However, to be given the grace to walk and not faint is an incredible thing. Many of you have heard me talk about how uh, years ago John Claypool lost his little daughter Laura Lou to a, a very painful battle with leukemia. She was only 10. A couple of months later, John was really just getting back in the swing of things, and he was making visits at the local hospital. And as he was walking through the hallway, he ran into an old friend of his, a Jewish rabbi in town. Um, they hadn't seen each other since all of this had taken place. So they exchanged greetings. The rabbi said how sorry he was. And then John said he startled me by saying, I want to ask you something, man to man, no BS. He said, I want to know, did God do anything for any of you in all of that darkness that you have been through? Well, John was caught off guard. He hadn't really expected to be interrogated right there in the lobby of the hospital. And yet he said, I looked at that man and I knew that he was asking from the depths of his own experience. I knew this was no time for some glib and simple answer. John said, I remember thinking back over the last 18 months that had just been. And I remember having to acknowledge that though we had prayed and hundreds of people had been praying, Laura Lou had not been healed. He said, I also had to admit that though we had the best of medical collaboration, we had done everything we knew to do, and yet no solution had been found. And as I thought back over the things and what had not happened, suddenly it came as clear as I was standing there that God had done something. 
He had given each of us the power to endure. John said, I can remember the incredible courage that Laura Lou manifested often in times of extraordinary pain. He said, I also remember times when I was so overwhelmed by the events, I felt like I was either going to blow up in anger or I was going to give up in despair. But somehow in those moments, when I was so stressed, a grace that I had never experienced before would come like a gentle river and somehow move me from place to place. John said to his friend, yes, God did do something for us. He gave us the grace to walk and not faint. And what happened was that John was changed. He came to a new realization that life is gift, that it is not our possession or our entitlement. He said, I learned that Laura Lou was in my life not because I deserved her, but because God had been good enough to give her. And I discovered that the best thing I could do in the face of her death was to be grateful that she had ever been given at all rather than be bitter that she had only lived for 10 years. And you see, it was John who was changed, his understanding of life. When the bottom falls out, begin, as we said last week, begin by remembering who you are. You are a child of God. But then go on to remember who God is. That God has three ways of becoming our grace in times of trouble. Sometimes God breaks in and solves the problems for us. More often, God comes alongside and offers to solve our problems with us. But sometimes God simply says, nothing is going to change save the grace to endure. And you are the one who will become something different. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen.